Well, this week and next week, we're completing a nine-week series on two chapters of this book. It's a distinct section within the book in which Paul deals with some specific matters. You might note that the title of the series has been Restoring Sexual Sanity, and what Paul just read this morning seems to have nothing to do with that exactly. And it is true that the presenting issue he wants to deal with right here doesn't have anything to do with sexual immorality. However, the beginning of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 6 both deal with that like bookends, so there must be something that ties this together, as we'll see. But remember, in the Bible's worldview, there are two distinct spheres of life that people live in. One is called the world, and the other is the church. The world is that system of values and thinking and living that is opposed to God that characterizes the people who live on this planet in general. The whole world, we are told, is under the sway or under the power of the wicked one, Satan. And the God of this age or this world, we are told, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the gospel. The world is a a whole system of thinking. It doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't matter whether the two places in the world are politically opposed to each other or even at war. There is a way of thinking that characterizes this world under the sway of Satan. And the church is that new community that God has created and is creating that he has placed in the world to be local, distinct families, communities, of believers, and we are meant to represent a different set of thinking and values. The thinking and values that come from God and through His Word. And the church is designed by God's purposes to offer a viable alternative to the world, as though we, we live as a distinct community, though we are part of the community at large in many ways, dress and speech, and much of our culture, and all of that, but by our presence and worship in the society as a group and by our presence and witness in society as individuals, by our lifestyle and our words, we're uh, meant to draw people into God's new society, that which is meant to be growing in various places and will someday manifest itself in the kingdom of God. And that's why it says in the book of Colossians, he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's not describing that he will deliver us someday when we go to heaven. Even now, he has delivered us, those of us who belong to Jesus, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the present form of his kingdom, which is found wherever Christian people meet together with the purpose of being witnesses and worshipers of Christ. And the problem in Corinth is that this distinctively different alternative to the world lifestyle that is meant to characterize God's people is not being lived out in Corinth. And Paul is concerned that it's not being lived out. In fact, he reacts in horror to what they're doing. Now, it appears from the passage that at least one of the members of the church in Corinth had taken another member to court over some kind of failed business uh, concern. The context seems to imply that this is a regular occurrence, that it's not just a one-time thing. And it's interesting that in this passage, Paul is shocked. In fact, of almost all the issues that arise within the book, and there are many, 
he seems uh, most shocked by this one. In the first few verses, there's scarcely any reasoning. There's a statement of what they have done where he moves from horror to rhetorical questions. Don't you understand? Don't you understand? Don't you understand? To sarcasm, to warning, all in 11 verses. But he starts with this utter amazement. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous and before saints. Now, that's not a very shocking thing to us. People go to court. They have problems. And you know, we watch it as a form of entertainment, I suppose. When I work out, sometimes they're playing Judge Judy. You know, and uh, if they have the, the yeah, ca- captions, I-, I can read you know, what they're talking about. But um, Paul sees it as a, as a failure, a basic failure to something so fundamental to the Christian faith that they, they need to be brought face-to-face with this. Now, you need to understand there are some differences between the society in which Paul lived and to which he was speaking here and ours today, though there are more similarities. But in Greek society, people loved to sue one another. It was sort of a form of diversion, particularly for the wealthy. They could either sue their peers or they could uh, sue inferiors and seek to take money from them. It was a way to kind of uh, garner your own, build your own uh, wealth. And um, the inferiors, the poorer members of the community, were not allowed to sue in court. They had other means of recourse, but not much. And so it, it was a very unfair system, and you add to that, the courts were notoriously corrupt in all of Roman society. The book of Acts tells us that Paul had experience of this himself. He was once arrested in Jerusalem, and he was uh, presented before the Roman governor with false charges. And this governor named Festus, we're told in one, one simple verse, you can easily read over, says that he, he left Paul for two years in prison hoping to get money out of him. <laughs> the point is clear. He was leaving there hoping that Paul would, through his supporters, would gain funds and would give it to him, and he would release him then. That was common to be done. But Paul sees this as a failure for the two uh, litigants, the two people who were opposed to each other in court. First, the one had cheated the other, it implies. He uses the word defraud later in the passage. And second, the, the second had responded had refused to respond in a proper way. They had not sought to deal with this together as Christians, consider what Christ would have them to do, but he views it as an even greater failure for the church. There's something about this that is like ripping the fabric of what the church is meant to be and to do, and that's what we need to see today. The church, to stand as an authentic witness to the world, to offer a viable alternative to the values of the world, has to maintain its own viability, its own life and lifestyle, because if it can't, it can't offer a viable testimony to the world. And Paul's concern here is not at all that the church hide its dirty laundry. There's there's none of this, you know, keep this in house, don't let anyone know about this kind of mentality. That's not what he's talking about. It's that they need to forthrightly deal with their own problems. In essence, it's a similar thing he talked about in the last passage where it's a matter of immorality. And he tells the church, here's how you need to deal with this. And maybe that's what ties these together. It's something about what the church is and what we're, we're meant to do. 
Now, again, let's stop and ask, why is this passage right here? It's, as I said, sandwiched between a beginning and ending of a discrete or distinct little section within the book in which Paul is responding to reports. It is actually reported, chapter 5, verse 1, that he has received of some problems in the Corinthian church. It ends at chapter 6 because when you open chapter 7, he starts that differently. Now concerning the things of which you wrote, and he's going to answer questions about which they had written to him. But why is it that sandwiched in between these two matters of morality, he puts this section that has to do with lawsuits and how to deal with that? Well, it's because the real problem in Corinth was not sexual immorality. It wasn't the permissive society that allows it. It was how the church was dealing with it. And the real problem in Corinth is not lawsuits or the litigious society that promotes that kind of mentality or the corrupt system that deals with it. The real problem is the church not dealing with its own problems, not being the church. And just as they were acting, they were were to act, but they were not acting in chapter 5 to promote the holiness of the church by removing an evident, openly sinning person in the same way they were not acting to promote the witness of the church and the community by dealing with a relational conflict, a business conflict between two people. And it's no different today. Churches uh, commonly deal with their disputes in court. We can read about it all the time. You know, remember, we looked at the passage last week where Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, here's what you should do. And there are four steps. Go to him privately. Go to him as a group. Tell it to the church. This needs to be dealt with, he said, among you. But there's a reason why it needs to be dealt with. From the perspective of God, these kinds of failures to deal with things that are going on between people who are confessing Christians, are members of the church, and are uh, seeking to be known as people who live for him, the failure to deal with that involves a fundamental failure to understand who we are and what is good God has designed us for. Who we are as Christian people, as the church, and what it is we're here in society for. If we don't think correctly about ourselves, we will not be able to think correctly about what our role is in society. Now, first, who we are. I want to start by looking at verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Now, the first thing we are to notice is that we're given some information about who we are. We're called the saints. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If you're not sure who the saints are, he starts the next sentence. Um, Do you not know you, excuse me, the next sentence, and if the world is to be judged by you, you are the saints, is the point. Now, I realize we have people from various backgrounds, and we have a long history in Western culture, and we think of saints, we tend to, as especially important, pious people from the past who, because of their pious living, were elevated to a level above the rest of us. That's not only true of those from a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox background where they name the saints and have a way of uh, calling someone a saint, but it's even true for those of us who grew up in churches that were more formal and used the King James Version that started every one of the letters or books of the New Testament, the gospel according to St. Matthew. And it gives the impression that there's something about Matthew that is different from you. He was a saint. 
and you are not. But that's not the point. This word is not used to refer only to some past Christians who are particularly holy. The word is used to refer to all Christians. This tells us who we are. We are saints. Dare you, dare anyone to go take an issue before the unrighteous instead of before the saints, before the world rather than before the people of God. Now, we think of the word unrighteous as particularly harsh, but he probably simply means because at the end of the passage he refers to the fact that the saints are people who are justified, declared righteous. He simply means the unjustified, those who are outside at this point of God's purposes. They do not call themselves the people of God. They don't trust in Jesus Christ. But people who are justified and belong to Christ are called the saints. Now, unfortunately, you may be aware the Mormons, have uh, they use this word commonly to refer to themselves, the saints, and that makes many people uncomfortable uh, using that to refer to Christians, and yet it is the word that is used in the Bible to refer to it. Now, what do we mean when we say all Christians are saints? Well, the first idea of the word saint is it's from the word holy. That's why it's translated in uh, one version, at least, holy ones. And it's referring to someone who is set apart. The word holy means to make something, set something apart, make it distinct from everything else. You and I each have something that is set apart, and that's our toothbrush, <laughs> right? My wife said to me the other day, in a moment of jest, those of you who know my wife will appreciate this, oh, by the way, I cleaned the toilet today with your toothbrush. I just wanted to let you know. Well, that is just disgusting. In fact, when I start to think about it, if my wife even brushed her teeth with my toothbrush, it would be sickening to think of that. My own wife, the wife of my bosom, as the Bible says. Been married for 40 years, but she better not touch my toothbrush. Toothbrush is set apart for us. I mean, it is an illustration of something being set apart. We have a fanatical attachment to it and to its purity, and that is how God feels about the church. The church belongs to him. We are his people, his own possession, the Bible says. And he has a fanatical attachment to maintaining our purity, to maintaining the fact that we belong to him. So that's what a saint is, someone who is set apart by God and for God. A saint is a person, secondly, who is restored to relationship with God. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought into a relationship with him in which we take Christ as our Savior and our Lord, and we follow him. We seek to follow him. And this letter is written to those who have been called to be saints, it says in chapter 1. Called by whom? By the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who effectively calls individuals to become followers of Jesus, enables us to trust the promise of the gospel, and through that, he makes us saints. But lastly, we have to note, a saint is not someone who is necessarily particularly holy in his or her lifestyle, a saint is called a saint because we belong to Jesus and we are joined to him by faith and all of his characteristics we receive the benefits of. We are saints because Christ's character covers us. We are saints because Christ's death on the cross covers our sins. That's what makes us saints. Now we are also to be becoming holy in our character and conduct. And we will 
find that being true over a period of time. However, it's never complete. In fact, those who make the greatest progress, I think, when we get to the presence of God, are going, those are going to find that um, they have not made that much progress. That's the power of sin. And yet the progress that is made is by the power of God. That's the first thing you need to understand. We are saints. God calls his people to be saints, his holy people. That's what he calls us. If you are a believer this morning, that is what you are. And our perception of who and what we are is going to determine how we live. If you're a believer here this morning, the Bible says you possess the Holy Spirit. That is the second person of the Trinity who effectively drew you and united you to Christ dwells inside of you. And that's what sets you apart from God's perspective from all other people in this world. The people of this world do not possess the Spirit. If they see life changes, and they do, it is purely out of self-effort, out of the power of the human will that they are able to change But Christians have a different source of power in addition to the choices that we make and the power of self-will. That is now empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we have the capability to live a life of obedience to God. You need to realize that is what I have. If I am a believer, I have the capability to obey God. It doesn't say that it will be easy. It will involve many struggles at times and difficulties. But if you're a believer here this morning, you are a saint and you possess the Holy Spirit, and if you're a believer here this morning, you should be the member of a visible community of saints, a local church. It doesn't have to be this one, but you should be connected with a community of people wherein you find your life being strengthened and you give your gifts to God. So, first of all, we are saints. We are God's people. There's really nothing more that needs to be said than that. We think of God as he really is in all of his majesty and splendor and holiness than to be one of his own people and to be clothed with the righteousness of of Christ is the greatest privilege and responsibility you can can conceive of. That's not the only thing the passage tells us. It not only tells us who we are, but it tells us at least something about what we are designed for, what we are meant to do. So again, verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, this tells us something very profound about the future. God's people are destined to judge the world, to rule the world. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world. Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? This promise comes from the Old Testament. And I I hate to tell you, it's, it's obscure in the sense that it doesn't tell us everything that it means. What it tells us is that Christ is the heir of all things. And we who belong to him will inherit with him the rule of the heavens and the earth when God restores all things. I happen, I read through the Psalms in my personal time of worship, and this morning I read Psalm 2. God says to the Messiah, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall rule them with a rod of iron and shatter them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now that's what the Father says to the Son at the moment 
of his inauguration as the Messiah, we might think of as his, as his baptism, that point where he was uh, called and appointed specifically to do the work he had come to do. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. So that's Christ's destiny. And we are destined to join with him in that. And so what we need to see is that since we've been given such a great task, even though we don't know much about it, the present is simply a preparation for that. That's why he brings it up here. He says, don't you know what it is you're being designed to do? Then why don't you deal with these trivial matters now? God has given you all that you need in order to do that, and you ought to be about it in order to prepare for the future. God has designed us for this great task, and we're told that this will come to pass. The book of Revelation says, when the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and they, that is the saints, will reign forever and ever. Or it says also in the book of Revelation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So, I mean, it gives us glimpses of this idea. This is what the people of God are designed for. And in the passage, Paul's concern, his horror, is that you're not even dealing with a simple matter. You're not being the people of God. Don't you understand who you are and what it is God has designed you for? And so he says in verse 4, as he begins to move towards a conclusion, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Now, I've been to Corinth twice, actually, the ruins, and uh, you can walk through the whole city and touch anything you want to. It's really fascinating. It's mostly ruins, but down what would have been the main thoroughfare that has businesses on one side, and there's a temple behind you. As you walk down there on the right side, there's a like a raised seat, it looks like. It looks a little too high to be a seat, but low to be a table. And there is, uh, on the side of it, a sign that says Bema in Greek. Bema means judgment seat. It's the word used in the New Testament for the judgment seat. And it tells you exactly where judgment was passed in the city of Corinth. Whoever the law givers or keepers were at that point would be at the Bema. People would bring their cases there, and they would be handled and resolved with all of the uh, dishonesty that I described and by bribery and all of that. And Paul's concern is, why would you go to a place where they're only going to handle things by pagan law and not God's law, his purposes? If you have a problem, why do you go to them to solve the problem? And so he goes on and says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers. Obviously, this is an implication. Of course there is. Of course, you have people that could help you to resolve these kinds of issues. It's a rhetorical question meant to, to shame them. Of course, there's someone in the church who would help you to deal with this, and you ought to take advantage of it. Now, listen carefully. A couple of things. Paul is not concerned that Christians would ever be in court. He's not concerned for that, we know, because he himself took advantage of his Roman citizenship, which required that he be uh, stand as the accused in the court. He was arrested in Jerusalem at one point on what were really trumped-up charges and taken to the Roman governor. The Roman governor later said he could have been released, but in the midst of a whole series of things going on and languishing in prison under house arrest for a period of time, Paul appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a full-born, naturally-born 
Roman citizen, and he had to be taken to Rome to be tried. In fact, the historical story of Paul ends at the end of the book of Acts under house arrest in Rome. We know that he was released and lived after that from the letters, but that's where the story ends. So you see, he, first of all, was not concerned that Christians never go to court. Obviously, we may have to at various points. His concern also was not that the church hide its dirty laundry and deal with its problems as though the world didn't exist. Because, again, he, as a Roman citizen, knew that he and the church had some responsibility within Roman society. So, for example, uh, churches often get in trouble today, have gotten in trouble, and should get in trouble when there's a matter, say, of child abuse. And they hide it. They don't bring it out into the open. They don't deal with it. What Paul is saying is, well, that obviously would have to go to the authorities, but you still need to deal with it inside and the relationships between people and the damage that's been done and all of those things. You can't just let outside secular authorities deal with it, though they have to in their own way. So it's not dealing with those kinds of things, but he is basically saying you need to solve your problems yourself. Don't drag into a public forum things that do not have to go there for debate and decision because you have all of the resources you need to straightforwardly deal with them. If you can't deal with trivial matters, how are you going to deal with what God will give you in the future? Now, we have to gather an important principle from this, and it's true of all of life, that the present is often a preparation for the future. The present is often a preparation for the future. Much of life involves that. High school or college is a preparation to go into the marketplace and get a job and uh, anticipate that somehow this that you're doing now will pay off. And um, engagement is a preparation for marriage, and a couple carefully prepares during engagement for life together, plans to provide for future life because they anticipate what marriage will give them in terms of responsibilities and privileges. Work responsibilities often grow as a person moves through life, and at every point, their preparation for the future is being made. That's just a principle of life. And what Paul is saying is that, do you not know what God has designed you to do? The present life in the church ought to be your preparation for the future and the things that God will give to you now as a college for the kingdom. So Paul says to the Corinthians, why take your lawsuits to court? These kinds of matters you can deal with yourself. Sometimes when children argue with one another, you know, you tell them to work it out between yourselves. Because the whole purpose of childhood is growing up and learning responsibility. And even though they almost never do, you still say it. The present is preparation for the future. Now, uh, the whole point is this. We have to understand who we are and what God has designed us to do. We are saints. That is, God's holy people. That's what he calls us. That's how he treats us. And we are destined to rule the world, even though we don't understand what that means. But we will share with Christ in his restoration of the cosmos, the heavens and the earth. And we prepare for it now through our participation in the church. You know what's interesting? The Corinthian church was probably one of the largest churches in the New Testament. I went to a missions conference this week that I was invited to go to and to participate in, and um, 
while I was there, I interacted with, with two people. I interacted with a man who is in Iceland planning a church. And after five years, he has gathered five people, three of whom are in his family. Iceland is the most non-Christian country in the Western world. If you count it part of Europe, which is where it came out of, it is among the European countries the most uh, non-Christian country there is. And then I interacted with a man from Mongolia. Very interesting. I had to look on the map where Mongolia is exactly. And Mongolia was bereft of Christians until some turning point in the 1980s when it all began to change. And now they say there's a thousand believers in the country. And uh, he has a goal. He's part of a, a ministry of church planning. He, his goal, their goal, is to see 1,000 churches planted before 2030. And when he says churches, he means 10 people. They, they start house churches because there's no way to have larger buildings. And 70% of the people in Mongolia live a nomadic lifestyle. They live in tents and things like that. So this is what they want to do. And they're having, um, you know, you wouldn't say it's, it's vast fruit, but they're having fruit compared to this brother that I talked to who was in Iceland. The Corinthian church was possibly the largest church in the New Testament. Hard to quantify that, difficult to prove, but there are some things we know. We happen to know the population of Corinth in 55 AD, and we know it pretty much through the next 100 years, and we know the size of the church about 75 years after this, how big it was because of a letter that was written. And we also know that in the church in Corinth, there were at least four house churches. The house churches were probably between 15 and 20 people each. So they could have had up to 80 people. And we know one other fact we don't know for other churches. There was an important patron in the church, a wealthy man named Gaius, who was the city treasurer. And he had a home large enough to hold the whole church. That phrase is only used twice in the New Testament. The whole church met in his home, which apparently meant all of the house churches periodically could meet together in the home of Gaius. So we know that this church was 60 to 80 people, 60 to 80 baptized believers in the church. It's possible the church in Rome was larger. It's a little hard to tell, but you know that, that was a large church. 80 people drawn from all strata of society, one of the unique things about the Corinthian church, rich and poor. The city was some, with the region around it, some eight to 10,000 people, 80 people. And uh, the province in which they were found was probably 200,000 or so. The Roman Empire, a few million, 80 people. And Paul is saying to them, you are destined to judge, to rule the world to judge angels. You need to understand who you are. Now, there's a couple of things we learned from that. Don't be enamored with size as one. That's the cardinal sin of American Christianity as far as I'm concerned. There's nothing inherently wrong with a large church and there's nothing particularly spiritual about a small church. That's not the point. The point is God does not measure things in terms of size but in terms of spiritual effectiveness. And Paul was concerned for their viability, not their size. He was concerned that they, they understand who they really were and what they were supposed to do. I mean, just remember, Jesus led the smallest church in history that planted more churches than any other church that has ever existed. 
Every one of his members went out and planted churches, we're told. So regardless of size, whether it's a tiny church meeting in a home or it's a, a very large church, there's a point I want you to make and understand from that. I'd like you to turn to a passage as we close in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's writing to a circle of churches throughout what is now Turkey in the different Roman provinces of Turkey. And I'm going to jump into the middle of something, so I'll have to explain it. Verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now, what it's talking about is the prophets. That's the context. The prophets of the Old Testament, what they did was they, they had visions and dreams and they heard the voice of God at times and they got from that snatches of revelation about specific things. So Micah saw about the virgin birth and the fact that it would take place in Galilee. And um, Isaiah got this truth about the Messiah suffering in the place of sinful people and they, they all got snatches of things they didn't understand the whole context, obviously, because they were having revealed to them a specific truth that they then wrote down and, and people drew from it when Jesus came. But we have the whole truth now. We have the story of Jesus' life. We know about his virgin birth and the, the way that he ministered and the miracles that he performed and, and uh, all of what happened. But it's saying these prophets, it was revealed to them that they were not doing this for themselves they were doing it for you. Isaiah, 800 B.C. The snatch of truth that is so important, so key in Isaiah 53, he knew that that wasn't for him. He was a conduit under the Holy Spirit's guidance to record something faithfully that had been revealed to him. It wasn't for him. It was for some future generation that were going to receive the fulfillment of the promise that was contained in what he saw. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, we are the ones, the church, the people of God, now that Jesus has come, who have received the fullness of everything that the prophets saw in bits and pieces. And then it ends with these words, things into which angels long to look. And that seems like this. What in the world? Why did he tack those words on? He's not talking about angels in the passage. Things into which angels long to look. Well, here's the significance of that. The Bible tells us that angels are not a race. The angels are all individual creations of God. They do not procreate. They do not have generations unlike human beings. Therefore, the Bible tells us that explains why there's no redemption for angels. Because if there were a mediator, as Jesus Christ is ours, he would have had to die for each angel individually and separately, whereas Jesus died for all the children of Adam who will be connected to him, all of the human race who will believe in him. And the point is that the angels, what they see when they see what we are doing now is they look down in a world of people who have rebelled against the creator, 
and have, have lived lives that are dissolute, and they see a world system that is under, under the sway of the evil one, and then within this whole world system, they see distinct groups of people like we are here this morning, and when they meet together, they sing songs about the greatness of God and the glory of salvation. And we pray, and we pray in thanksgiving to God, and we announce his worthiness to be praised. And when they look down, they see us open up the word of God and seek to bring our lives in line with what God says. And they can't understand it because there's no redemption for angels. Even the Bible divides angels into two categories, ultimately. The elect angels, those who chose to obey God at some specific point, in the past, and were fixed in their holiness, and the evil angels, who are the demons, those who rebelled against God and were fixed in their rebellion. There are two categories. They can't understand redemption on either side, though this passage is probably talking about the elect angels. They look on and they marvel that there is a creation, a created being, who ultimately will be greater than they are, according to the Bible, and will judge them. There is a created being who has been restored. They can't understand restoration. They can't understand grace. Their king is God, but he's not their savior. Our king is God and our savior. This tells us what the church is and what we're meant to be. They long to understand redemption. We experience it. And what a church is designed to be as God's community of people in a local church is his community in a distinct place, seeking purposefully together to live for Christ. And you can't imagine, well, we certainly can't imagine what our worship means to the angels. They long to understand. But you can't even imagine what a unified church in a local community, the power that it has by the Spirit of God, it says more, and it does more than we could ever imagine. So you need to take your place among God's people. You need to understand and seek to live out the incredible power of a unified, loving, giving church in a community because, according to the Bible, there's nothing more important that is going on today than what we are doing here this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious God, again, we thank you for the freedom and the privilege of gathering as your people. And when we lift our voices in song, we pray that you would unite our hearts by your spirit with the words that we are singing in such a way that we engage with it and we engage with you. And we find ourselves in your very presence, singing to you as we will one day, that day that we long will come soon, in which we will be in your presence and we will again sing your praise. We long for that day, but we pray that you would enable us by your grace to be your church now. We pray that you would protect us and care for us and guide us and use us. 